0: This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Michael Birkuck, who's the CEO and founder of Q-Control. Michael's also a professor of quantum physics and quantum technology at the University of Sydney, where he leads a team working to develop advanced technology powered by quantum physics. Michael completed his master's and PhD at Harvard University, and after university held a research fellowship in the Ion Storage Group at NIST Boulder, under the supervision of Dr. David Wineland, who went on to win the 2012 Nobel Prize in physics. Michael's also worked as a consultant to DARPA, helping steer government investments in quantum information and next-generation computer architectures. And he divides his time between L.A. and Sydney, Australia. Uh, Q-Control, Michael's company, helps make quantum technology useful through advanced, intuitive, scalable quantum control engineering solutions. We're going to talk quite a bit about that. Q-Control enables researchers, developers, and engineers to build stable, reliable quantum computers and quantum sensors without suffering from the noise and hardware errors that have held the field back for far too long. So welcome, Michael. I'm delighted to be speaking with you.
0: Thank you so much for the kind introduction and the uh, opportunity to chat.
1: Great. So I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my obje- objective really is twofold, to give our audience certainly a sense of what you did before you founded Q-Control, but more broadly, to orient our audience to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could share with our mm-hmm. listeners a bit about your background and your path so far, like where where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied. I called out Harvard. Any insight into other organizations where you worked, like NIST and DARPA? Absolutely.
0: Uh, I'd love to, to share a little bit about that, about, uh, that story in large part because, uh, as you suggested, I do have a slightly non-traditional path. Um, you know, as, uh, as a kid, I grew up in the United States. I grew up in, in New York. Um, like many people in our field, um, I was precocious in math and science. <laughs> uh, I ended up pursuing uh, my undergraduate degree in physics at the University of Pennsylvania, um at the time i studied uh condensed matter physics right solid state physics and um i think wow. it's an important it's an important thing to say because at the time there was no such thing as quantum information science right i was yeah. entering i was entering university just after shore published his uh, original work and it was a reasonably niche uh, application Nonetheless, I really got into the field um, and got my, my first feelers because, as an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania in my senior year, I organized a, a workshop primarily for students uh, called Frontiers in Computing. And Peter Short actually came to speak. Uh, wow. So it was, you know, it was very early in the journey, um, it was quite exciting. There were other uh, luminaries in the field came and, and joined and gave perspectives on the future of computation from from the biological hmm. side DNA computing all the way of course to uh, quantum computing um, and that I, I have to admit I was really really hooked at that point I knew quantum computing at the you know less than undergraduate level I, I knew only the highest most superficial insight into the field but it was extremely exciting and, and quite inspiring to hear from uh, from uh, Peter short himself um, Wow. Then I went to, I went to Harvard. Um, uh, my degree uh, at Harvard was focused on nanoelectronics. right? I was doing quantum transport measurements in in nanoelectronics with uh, Charlie Marcus. Um, Charlie Marcus at the time was at Harvard. He then moved to Copenhagen and had worked at Microsoft for a while. Um, that work was all in, again, solid state devices. So understanding how electrons flow in, in solid state materials because, again, there wasn't a uniquely identified field of quantum information at the time in terms of, say, degree programs. Yeah, All the same, I was funded at that time during my PhD by a number of government agencies in the US that really, to be quite fair, built the field. Um, it, was, it was money that ultimately came from the US National Security Agency. Uh, through the Army Research Office and some offices that no longer exist, like ARDA. Um, ARDA, the Advanced Research Development Activity within the NSA, really built the entire global community in what today is the field of quantum information science, and I was funded by them as a PhD student, Hmm. um, looking at how solid state devices could be used to build uh, quantum computers in the future. Obviously, very Hmm. early, um, I was at Harvard from 01 to 05. Um, but then I, you know, as I completed my degree, uh, I decided I wanted to take a slightly different path. Um, so instead of going right into a postdoc, um, you know, most of my colleagues went to places like Delft or or Princeton or, or other locations to pursue related work to their PhD. Right. Um, I I became a management consultant hmm. uh, and was seconded full time to DARPA. So uh, DARPA, at the time, this is this is late two thousand and five, was getting interested in quantum information and uh, quantum technology writ large. Uh, so my role was to assist the organization as a subject matter expert in standing up research programs in in quantum information. Um, so we did uh, a couple of big programs there. But by virtue of that of my position, Um, which included the exceptionally uh, exciting title, which was um, uh, slightly substance-less, of uh, Chief Scientist to the the Office Director of MTO, Microsystems Technology Office. I did work with the Office Director. Um, They gave me this amazing title. Uh, I would say it was um, a bit too generous. Um, (laughs) But still, I I had this exciting role to span across a wide variety of technologies that were being developed by MTO. Uh, MTO is responsible for all sorts of things like uh, um, advanced microprocessors, uh, new kinds of night vision, uh, new kinds of 3D integration for chips, on-chip photonics, all these things were going on Mm -hmm. in that office. And one area where I worked, which was quite inspiring, was new forms of microprocessor architecture enabled by photonics. And what was quite exciting to me, uh, and I I was obviously in a wonderful position to be the beneficiary, was that my boss more or less said, I want you to learn really everything you can about microprocessor architecture from the best. And so I more or less had private lessons from professors at MIT tutoring (laughs) me on, on you know, advanced concepts in pipelining and, and you know, the way we uh, we architect microprocessors. So that was quite a learning experience. Amazing, wow. and, and that, you know, that's on top of the quantum information work that I was doing. So just an incredibly powerful mm. learning experience. During that time, I also got to know Dave Wineland. Um, DARPA, as an agency, interacts very broadly with the research community in government, outside of government, Academia and the like,
1: right. and
0: uh, excuse me, I got to know Dave, and then um, an opportunity arose to go and uh, return to the laboratory bench and work directly with him. So in um, in 2010, uh, I started with uh, an independent fellowship funded by the U.S. intelligence community, uh, a position uh, with with Dave at NIST, and and I worked at the time on a couple of different experiments but primarily on on a system called a penning trap so this is a, an ion trap that allows us to contain confine large arrays of of ions so not just one or two which was the the norm at the time but but hundreds and in that experiment i i in a sense combined some of the work that i had done at darpa on learning about how to control and manipulate Quantum systems and, and stabilize quantum systems against uh, decoherence, and applied it in the Penning trap. That was some of the first work we did. Some work on uh, which later became uh, uh, a paper on uh, large scale quantum simulation. So we did an experiment of quantum simulation wow. of the Ising model with with three hundred qubits. This is back in two thousand twelve. So way we wow. way way ahead any of wow. any of the other things. Now there are some limitations in that platform, but uh, it was really uh, very exciting. And then um, I, I moved on from my research fellowship at NIST and started my academic career as an independent um, uh, professor, as a primary investigator, uh, and I, I joined the University of Sydney. Um, now, I, I guess the next question is, well, man, how did you end up in Australia? You're from the US. <laughs> well, uh, yes. an, important, an important thing to say is that Australia for a very long time made strategic investments in quantum information, uh, way ahead of other really? nations. Wow. Who and, would have thought? No, it's, it's, it's interesting. And it's, it's quite serendipitous. It comes down to you know, one or two people, Jared Milburn, who was a luminary in the field on, on the theory side, and at the time, Bob Clark, who was leading uh, a big research organization at UNSW. So I got to know many of these Australian researchers because of the ARDA program. That I that funded my PhD research, hmm. um, I was I was part of this community. Um, we would meet at the annual what's called quantum computing program review, which still is ongoing, hmm. uh, and uh, got to know them. I visited in two thousand five Australia. I had a fantastic time, did some great science, got to the beach. Like, it was an amazing, uh, life changing experience. Hmm. And then as opportunities came up for faculty appointments, I uh, I returned, and uh, my academic team has primarily focused on developing the field that we call quantum control engineering, learning how to make quantum systems perform useful tasks. So we do this in the context largely of quantum computing, um, solving problems and error rates in quantum computers and the like, but really we build frameworks, we build tools that allow anybody to improve the way they can manipulate quantum bits or, or, uh, or general quantum physical systems that That insight was ultimately the genesis of q control, which we founded in uh, two thousand and seventeen, to take the 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 understanding we had the specialist expertise in quantum control to the market
1: wow, so just to play back what a what a fascinating journey i mean academia to i mean i could we could cast you as the first sort of quantum consultant on some level i mean uh, uh, that's a unique role that now is burgeoning for sure, and then Back to academia and then to your own company. So thank you for sharing. That's very enlightening and inspiring. Absolutely. Uh, thank um, you. It was a fun journey.
0: I, I do want to say I was not the first quantum consultant. I was uh, I was certainly an early member of a team that was focused on this, but I, I would say I was the first person recruited to this kind of role specifically because of my background uh, le- working in quantum uh, computing.
1: Oh, yeah. no, fantastic. So... Logical segue, sort of into, you know, how you started Q-Control. So in preparing for our conversation, um, looking at your website, there's a quote from a book about Orville and Wilbur Wright designing the first viable airplane. And the quote is, embracing the importance of control theory was integral to making flight a reality. Fast forward over 100 years, and once again, control is a linchpin of an emerging industry. So obviously, control is part of the core vision, as you mentioned, for the company. So what inspired you to start Q-Control? I mean, you mentioned the work you're doing at the university, but was there like an epiphany or a seminal moment like, you know, we could actually do this and start a company that would deliver value based on what we know and the research that we're doing? Can you share some of that insight? Absolutely. Uh, the
0: first thing to say is that that quotation um, about the Wright brothers really does capture the view that was emerging in my mind. That mm-hmm. we we kept seeing that it was control engineering that built industries. Right. Um. Just to spend a moment or two on the Wright brothers, you know, they they were not aviation engineers, and yet they achieved what no one else can. And something that's that's not so well appreciated is that there was actually a very crowded field of teams that were building aircraft, aircraft that were getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um. But everybody in the field was, was uh, at some level trying to achieve something called inherent stability, that no matter what the pilot or the passenger on the aircraft did, the, the aircraft would keep flying stably.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, that was, that was the prevailing wisdom at the time. The Wright brothers were bicycle engineers, right? As, as, as anybody would know, you know the, the person riding the bike can uh, exert a huge amount of influence over the bike. You can obviously steer, but you could crash it very easily. Yeah. Uh, they Stop it and start That's exactly <laughs> right. right. Um, they took this insight that giving the pilot of, uh, of a vehicle Control over the vehicle can, can lead to stable travel, right? You know, bicycles stay up. They do. Yeah. Um, they took that idea and they applied it to aircraft design. So they introduced concepts that today we would call control theoretic. Um, the idea of deformable airfoils, that's a Wright brothers concept. Um, yeah. In fact, it, it is suggested that the machine they built was, was so unbelievably sensitive that perhaps only they could fly it because they were you know, trained on it. But still, they achieve what no one else can. They built the entire aerospace industry. To today, their insights influence the field. And you can play the tape forward to drone technology and walking robots and autonomous vehicles. In every case, it's yeah. control that makes it work. So I had been working on this field um, in, in the quantum domain, looking to make quantum systems useful. And um, you know, I was starting to think more and more about how I could maximize impact. Um, so, so on one side, there was a bit of a a push factor that I felt constrained by the strictures of a purely academic career, yeah. and then on the other side there was a pull factor. Now I had been talking to vice, uh, to uh, to VCs, uh, venture capitalists, for some years at this point, uh, largely consulting, largely helping them understand the field, and and frankly, largely telling them, you know, this is really early. I don't think you understand uh, how much R and D is required. I then got invited to an event. Um, in Munich, hosted by a VC called Blue Yard Ventures. This was, uh, I think it was June 2017. And uh, at that event, more or less everybody who you would say had some kind of industrial or applied inclination was there. Uh, Lots of my colleagues from the R&D community, but also lots of end users, people from uh, the industry side, Rigetti Computing was already quite active, IBM, Google, they were all present. And then a whole range of people I had never worked with before, um, investors, um, uh, enterprise end users who were excited about quantum computing. And in the midst of this discussion, now I was there representing academia. In fact, I sat on a panel about how academia and industry can work together. But I, I, I had an epiphany. And my epiphany was, it doesn't matter, in a sense, if it is early. Um, even if my gut instinct is that hey, this is pretty early in the tech cycle, the industry was moving, and I knew at that time that at least there there was tolerance uh, for that risk profile and for the you know the time duration, the time horizon that was relevant. And as soon as I returned from Munich, I was only there for two days. I flew from Sydney to Munich for two days and back. Oh, um, gee! I used to do that all the time. Um, I, I called one of the investors with whom I had been speaking reasonably regularly, a guy named Bill Barty, who had just set up a new fund in Australia uh, called Main Sequence Ventures. And and I told him, hey, it's, it's right now or never. We have to do this right now. And so then um, that was you know, roughly the... It was, it was June or maybe the very beginning of July. And... um the company was founded on paper just a couple of months later, uh, and we took capital the first day. So, Amazing. very, very exciting wow. journey.
1: So, here we are, you know, coming to the end of twenty 2020, twenty twenty one, And I also read that at the end of November, you announced a Series B fundraise of $25 million, led by Airbus Ventures, which I thought was fascinating. And I want to share a quote that uh, Dr. Louis Pinot, Airbus Venture uh, Partner, said about the relationship. He said, we're particularly excited about Q control's widening span of advanced applications and solutions, including lunar development, geospatial intelligence, and earth observation, all increasingly critical in the global effort to address the accelerating planetary system crisis crises we now face. So, can you give me some big picture perspective on how those focus areas um, you know, tie to the funding and what the expectation is maybe from Airbus? And I want to later on went into more detail about. It. Some really fascinating projects, but just from a meta perspective, like tell me about that relationship, what the expectation is, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, The place to start is that from day one, Q-Control was a quantum technology company, not a quantum computing company. Our initial focus was, of course, quantum computing for lots of reasons, for talent, for personal experience and networks, for the investor zeitgeist. Um, and so so we began our efforts there. Our initial products were launched there. We have a lot of customers in that space. But we always knew that quantum sensing could benefit from the same kinds of capabilities that we were developing to enhance and augment the performance of quantum computers, right? In in quantum computing, we make software that makes quantum computers perform better. And we know that we can do the same thing in quantum sensing. In In 2020, we were approached by um, a very well-established local company in Australia called Advanced Navigation, who was interested in um, expanding their portfolio of inertial navigation systems to include perhaps quantum quantum-enhanced technology. Um, they they make systems that are you know bought by NASA, bought by SpaceX, Facebook, Apple, everybody, everybody buys their hardware. But they wanted to look forward. And so uh, we began an R&D uh, activity together. We then secured a customer together uh, on, uh, in the defense sector. Um, and from there, we began in, in really late 2020, building a team that was focused on actually constructing quantum sensors. We decided strategically that it didn't make sense to only do software in this space and then rely on third-party hardware. Instead, it made more sense for us to build the hardware. So we, ha- we have assembled in the intervening period throughout 21, um, really an exceptional team. Uh, it's about a, it's about 10 right now, I think, experts in quantum sensing and cold atom devices, uh, inertial navigation, magnetometry, gravimetry, and all of these capabilities together and then the new markets that they can unlock from navigation to geospatial intelligence—that is what really resonated with Airbus Ventures. Uh, Airbus has a well, Airbus Ventures, I should say. Uh, first of all, it has an exceptionally broad and independent man- mandate. They are not really a strategic investor; they're an independent venture capital uh, investor. So they don't just uh, you know, invest in companies that are going to make airplane parts or something. Um, they, they are interested in a wide range of topics, and Lewis's particular interest is on um, how, what, are, what are some alternate strategies, aside from, say, carbon capture or whatever, to deal with um, what's going on in terms of climate change. And so he was interested in the fact that the gravimetric sensors we're currently building um, can, in principle, be used uh, in space to detect changes in underground water, to monitor ice caps, to monitor ocean currents. So these are all scientifically validated applications uh, of, of gravimetry from space. We now have a pathway to make this lower cost and persistent and turn it into uh, data as a service offering. So it was, it was that kind of narrative that really resonated with Airbus. And frankly, I loved Airbus's really big vision. Um, they weren't just saying, Oh, well, you know, can you do one thing and, and try to scale it for, I don't know some very narrow application space? They really embraced the idea that Q control can be everywhere where quantum technology can have an, an impact. and that alignment is what led to the series B fundraise.
1: Great. Well, congrats. So let's segue into whenever give you a chance to talk about the portfolio. So certainly, Black opal, I want to. Uh, get your insight into that a little bit later in the podcast in the context of like an education and workforce development conversation. But tell me about the broader portfolio, uh, Boulder Opal um, and uh, Fire Opal. You know, what are their core capabilities and how do they integrate with current systems? Can you tell us about sure. that? Sure.
0: Um, you know, we we build software products that allow end users to avail themselves of all of our expertise and capabilities in quantum control. Um, we target those products at end users with different levels of expertise. So um, the two products that you mentioned, one called Boulder Opal, another called Fire Opal, target very, very different categories of users. Let me start with uh, Let me start with Boulder Opal. Boulder Opal is a tool for R and D professionals. It is a tool where experts who build and study quantum computing and quantum sensing can take advantage of the most advanced capabilities in control optimization, system identification, characterizing hardware, and uh, the application of AI and machine learning to the automation of quantum hardware. So that tool improves the performance of quantum hardware and automates performance. So a lot of the manual tasks that we face about tuning up um, quantum logic operations, calibrating I and Q channels on RF mixers and th- all of this can be automated by our agents. And, and more than that, one of the big challenges that many teams face with uh, their quantum computing hardware is that there are always hidden terms. there are always hidden uh, sources of error, hidden couplings that we don't know about. We've demonstrated with these tools and our, in particular, our learning control solutions that a fully autonomous AI agent can design new quantum logic operations in our demos on IBM's hardware that outperform the best human designed and calibrated gate by a factor of two and a half. So, you know, uh, and we would hit the so-called T1 limits. So uh, these tools are very, very powerful. They're extremely flexible, um, but they are for expert users. Now, we, we often work with our customers to deliver that, but we knew from engaging the market that there was a really, really wide range of, say, enterprise users out there who were excited about quantum computing, but knew there was a challenge, which is that the hardware doesn't perform perfectly, right? There are huge, huge divergences between what you expect when you multiply some matrices together in, in MATLAB or something, um, and then when you, when you run an algorithm on a quantum computer, because the quantum computers are imperfect. Um, this this became a major annoyance to many customers, irrespective of which backend, and they were all asking, um, can can it, someone just provide a an autonomous, you know, error reducing toolkit? So this is what we are building uh, and releasing this year. Fire Opal takes the core capabilities we have demonstrated on IBM's hardware and other hardware. Where we can reduce error in quantum logic, where we can use autonomous AI agents to design error resilient quantum logic gates, the two qubit gates. It takes all of that and some additional smarts at the so called compiler level and makes a a really, really simple workflow. You're a user, you have a problem uh, and an algorithm. You run your algorithm through our last mile compiler, you execute it on hardware. And you get huge benefits. So we demonstrated recently uh, up to twenty seven x improvements in the success of an algorithm using this this uh, this tool. Um, so you you run an algorithm like uh, so called Bernstein-Vazirani or uh, the quantum Fourier transform or Grover search um, on bare hardware using standard approaches. Uh, You can even compile it a lot to reduce uh, excess gates. You get some probability of success. Then you do the same thing, but with our solution, which replaces all the quantum logic with error-resilient versions of the quantum logic. And all of a sudden, you run the same algorithm, the same circuit, nothing has changed in the circuit, and it's 27 times better. Now, we've demonstrated since we put that out, up to 37 times improvement. Um, we've done this on, uh, I think now, five or six different uh, IBM quantum computers. The results keep coming out ab- about the same. Um, you can play every trick in the book uh, that an- the most expert IBM user would use, and we still win by an order of magnitude at least. And uh, you know the, the idea is to provide a combination of simplicity and performance right? That irrespective of what the hardware backend is, right? They're, they're all imperfect. They all suffer from hardware yeah. faults. We just want to make it easy for an end user to get the best possible performance. And the model we have in mind is that, you know, if you look at an example today, there are many more people who can program in JavaScript than there are people who understand how a transistor works. Right. Yeah. Right now, to really get high performance in a quantum computer, you you have to know how the transistor works, in air quotes. And we want to break that. We want to abstract that away. And our tools, which automate all these processes of designing error-resilient quantum logic, of integrating them into an algorithm, it's all automated. And it's all handled by AI agents. Um, that is how we think we can get to the point where we have lots and lots of algorithm developers who come up with clever applications to solve really impactful problems. And simply use our infrastructure software to get the best possible performance.
1: Yeah. So, so it points to sort of the SDA que- SDK questions. I describe it that way. You know, um, I see that Q Control Solutions work with IBM Qiskit, with quantum machines, spaghetti, quill, Qtip. So, how are you able to achieve this kind of broad interoperability? Is it the AI agents, or what's the? What's the secret sauce, if you can share that?
0: <laughs> I think that the first place to start is that our community uh, has effectively arrived at a de facto standard, and that is the use of Python as our programming language. Um, so all of our tools are, are built in Python. We can do all sorts of funny things behind the scenes to accelerate uh, and to you know use uh, cloud resources to augment computational performance and the like. But ultimately, the interface with everything else is via Python. So uh, you you, know, you mentioned a couple of our partnerships. Um, you know, uh, IBM Qiskit. It's a Python interface. Quantum machines. They have their own so-called orchestration layer uh, called Qua, which is how you piece together the commands for their hardware. Well, we we say what it is that the hardware should output. We define the quantum logic, and we simply uh, use Python as an interfacing language to Qua. So uh, this is the, the model that allows us to uh, touch a wide range of hardware platforms. We do it with Arctic as well, which is very popular in the, uh, in the trapped ion community. We've done all sorts of custom integrations with Keysight hardware. But because it's all Python-based, it's, it's actually quite straightforward.
1: Yeah, great. So that's fantastic, and congrats on that. Thank you. Um, the, so the question in everyone's mind is always, and I've, I called the $64,000 question recently, and, and the person I was speaking to had no idea what that meant. So for any listeners, I'm going to use it again, but it's a 50s or 60s TV show where there was some compelling question at the end that if you answered it correctly, it gets $64,000. So anyway, the question is, you know, who are the clients? So it looks like that said, Q-Control has some pretty interesting ones. For example, I saw an article titled uh, Flying Ahead with Space Jobs Boom, I had a picture of a flying car and said Q Control was going to be involved. I also read that the company is currently developing something I found fascinating. It's called Space Qualified Quantum Sensors via the Moon to Mars Supply Chain Capability Program. Wow. And through the Seven Sisters Consortium led by Fleet Space. So can you share with our listeners more detail about these initiatives and what your company's role will be? It looks very cool.
0: Oh, thank you. We think it's really, really cool. Um, we, <laughs> yeah. we work, as I mentioned, across both quantum computing and quantum sensing. And uh, because we have our own in-house capability for the development of what we call software-defined quantum sensors, where we're really augmenting performance using control as opposed to only focusing on making better hardware engineering, Uh, solutions. Um, It lets us work with some really incredible organizations. So in quantum computing, we've been a member of the IBM Q uh, network since the inaugural class in April, 2018. Uh, We sell to Rigetti. We sell to National Labs, uh, Fermilab, NIST, Lawrence Livermore Lab, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, they're all customers of ours. We sell to defense organizations in in Australia and abroad. We sell to universities. Northwestern has been an an early client of ours applying our solutions to their work in fundamental physics. They want to build atom interferometers to study fundamental physics. So they've been a fantastic client. Uh, Chalmers University has done a lot of work with us in their superconducting quantum computing work. Um, But then, because we have so much quantum sensing activity now, uh, indeed, we've won a number of major contracts that support the development of space-qualified quantum sensing hardware as a po- as a, 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 a contrasted with only terrestrial applications. So we have our work with advanced navigation and, and say, maritime navigation. Uh, but then uh, with advanced navigation as well, we won this Moon to Mars Supply Chain Capability Program contract where we're space-qualifying our solutions for the Australian Space Agency and for NASA. Um, we also uh, are part of a consortium called uh, the Seven Sisters Consortium. It's a companion mission to NASA Artemis, which seeks to bring the first woman and another man back to the moon. Uh, and uh, through Fleet Space, we're looking to bring quantum sensors for uh, magnetic and gra- gravitational signals uh, to the moon. But ultimately, the objective is to bring these uh, onto Mars. That's why it's the Moon to Mars supply chain, where these technologies can be useful for uh, planetary survey, right? Of course, sure. they can be used for Earth observation, but also off-Earth observation. So measuring, say, the, the gravitational signatures of, uh, of Mars, right, in order to look for tidal forces, yeah. right? There, there yeah. are all sorts of or mineral deposits of different uh, forms. There are a lot of really exciting opportunities, and our focus is on developing core software enabled quantum sensing capability there that can then feed into these major space exploration or defense missions
1: yeah so fascinating. I look forward to learning more about that and, and monitoring that. What an amazing cu- a couple of projects you've got underway. Just shift gears and talk about sort of earthbound clients for a moment. I read that you guys have established a partnership with transport for NSW and we'll be delivering enterprise infrastructure software to transport data scientists who are exploring quantum computing here in a terrestrial setting. So tell me more about what role Q-Control will be playing in that relationship.
0: We're we're very happy and very proud of this relationship with Transport for New South Wales. Um, Transport for New South Wales is the public sector transport agency that is in charge of road and rails and ferries and everything else um, uh, for uh, the state of New South Wales and Australia. Um, Transport for New South Wales, it turns out, is also well-known internationally as an early adopter of really advanced technology from AI and machine learning techniques for network optimization uh, to now quantum computing. They reached out to us and were interested in how their data scientists, because they have a quite a uh, high quality data science team internally, how they could take advantage of quantum computing for various problems. So we, we did some early work with them to demonstrate the state-of-the-art in quantum computing and uh, indicate how it would impact their operations. In particular, transport network optimization is a, is a key area of interest where there's good alignment with quantum computers. And we have uh, since entered an agreement with them to deliver infrastructure software, our opal tool, effectively, with a special module built for transport that, that their data scientists can use. So their data scientists who are experts in, in transport optimization are not necessarily experts in quantum algorithms, but they want solutions that will work for them, that will help them explore how this field will be relevant. So we were, we were really Transport for New South Wales' uh, first entry point into the field. And our, our relationship has been so successful so far that, as a, in part as a result, uh, I won't overclaim our impact there, but to, in <laughs> part as a result, um, not long ago, they came out with a whole five-year strategy to broadly engage the global quantum computing community to make quantum computing a core part of their data science and analytics within the next five to 10 years. I mean, I think that's, that's an incredibly forward-looking fantastic uh, approach. They are well aware that this is both early stage and risky. They embrace the risk because they believe, because they're an organization that lives on multi-decadal timescales, that um, if there is a 10-year time horizon or more for the integration of this technology into their workflows, that's fine because now is the time to start planning. Wow. And, Amazing. Uh, we're very pleased to be, uh, to be part of that story.
1: So a couple of closing questions around uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is sort of workforce and enabling the quantum-ready Um, workers, you know, in the years ahead. I want to start by asking you about Black Opal. So you describe it as an interactive online learning platform that allows 16 years old and up to learn basic quantum computing skills. Again, quoting from your uh, material, perfect for technology professionals, STEM-obsessed teenagers, science fans, and self-learners who like to stay a step ahead. And you state you have a dual mission to help both newcomers who are entering the field, but also make every C-suite executive quantum conversant. So tell me a little bit about Black Opal. How's that going to work? How does that work? What's the what's the content? What's the process? You know, what's the framework, if you will?
0: You know, the first thing I, I think I'll remark on is uh, your audience will, will note now that our products are named Black Opal, Fire Opal, and Boulder Opal. Um, and uh, you might say, "Well, what sense does <laughs> why, that make?" Why the opal? Uh, What's up with that your, opal? You know, we're we're an Australian headquartered organization. Opal is uh, is you know a national gemstone, but but more importantly, it is a, a unique Australian gem that is globally coveted. And so is q control. So, um, <laughs> with that in time. mind, and and, <laughs> <Really> uh, <heard. laughs> and a f- thank you, and a flair for uh, for creativity and building human connection, we we named our products this way. When we, were, when we were going to market, we actually had a huge number of inbounds to Q-Control um, who had heard about us, who had read some story about our fundraise or whatever, um, but were never uh, uh, ready to use our technical tools. They were not the R&D professionals who uh, could start deploying our optimization or AI agents in their, in their workflows. They were people who really were outsiders to the field. And uh, this happens so often that first we made a series of uh, educational videos that, that were very, very highly rated that explained some basics of the field. But then in continuing to engage with that community of end users and also our own team, we realized that there were some pretty big barriers to learning enough about quantum computing and quantum technology um, in order to be conversant shy of signing up for a six or nine month you know edX type course and beyond a couple of YouTube videos, right? What what was available was a little bit superficial and or was just too much of a commitment and and didn't work for you know professionals who are already working full time and the like. Yeah no middle ground
1: if you will there There was
0: no middle ground. Um, And Black Opal fills that gap. Black Opal in a sense is Duolingo for quantum It takes any user from absolutely zero, no knowledge whatsoever of quantum computing, to programming real quantum computers uh, with modular education in just a couple of minutes a day. It's completely self-paced. There is a community of learners that you join, so you're not completely isolated. You can engage with everybody else who's on the same uh, learning journey. Uh, If you're uh, so inclined and active on social media, you can share your accomplishments. Uh, but the content is is quite unique in that we took a, a very different approach to teaching this we, we We went to building intuition. This is not a is not a coding course. This is not like here learn Qiskit. This is learn the fundamental concepts so that if you decide to become a user of quantum computers or you want to enter the field because you're a software developer and you're you know thinking about how you can contribute to quantum computing, you will have intuition about what the terms mean about how the technology works uh, that allows you to have a much greater impact. And obviously it makes it much easier to enter the field.
1: So the content,
0: the content is built by um, our expert team. We have, you know, I'm a professor, we have a number of ex-academics uh, on our team who contribute to this and is driven by uh, Chris Ferry, uh, who most famously wrote a book called Quantum Physics for Babies. Uh,
1: he, he's, oh yeah, he's,
0: with uh, Whirly. I've seen that book. Uh, well, he I have the, that book, actually. The, that, that's uh, Quantum Computing for Babies, which was a right. follow-on. Uh, Chris oh, yeah. was the sole author of Quantum Physics for Babies, and, and oh, there's, okay. whole, there's a whole series of these books. There's yeah, like yeah, cool. 30 of them or something. Um, and you know, Chris's ability is to distill very complicated ideas into simple messages and uh, simple images. But with the web, with, with you know with uh, uh, electronic or digital technology, we can leverage interactivity and animation. In a way that you can't get from a standard course so we put together our top tier content development how would we teach the basics behind quantum computing from waves and you know what are atoms all the way through to you know here are CNOT gates and here's how a Toffoli gate works and here's a circuit element for amplitude amplification you know all these things but it's all delivered Leveraging our expertise in product engineering and and user interface design. Cool. So Great. so it's 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 awesome. The feedback uh, with the soft launch around uh, Black Friday has been incredible. We beat our sales target by you know by four or five x um, for that ten day window. So we're we're really excited, and the mm-hmm. feedback and reviews have just been uh, astounding. So we'd love for everybody yeah. to to give it a try.
1: Yeah, well, thank you and congratulations on creating that content. So, where can people find it? If they go to QControl, Control, you can, can just go to, to you the can website. Just go to
0: QControl.com and com uh, and uh, look on our products page. There's a page there, um, and uh, it's very, very easy to sign up and get immediate
1: access. Or if you want to give a digital gift, you know, no you delivery go.
0: delays. You can do it right away.
1: The holiday season is here. Yeah, that's correct. In. Well, thank you for doing on behalf of the community. Thanks for putting it together. I look forward to exploring it some more. Uh, again, I want to. So to close with posing a question to you as someone leading a um, an innovative quantum company. You know, tell me about the challenges facing q control. Say and finding talent. You know, how do you bo- go about recruiting for your company? Now you're connected to a university, so I would guess that makes uh, make it somewhat easier. I mean, you have to some degree a talent pipeline, maybe coming out of the physics department or electrical engineers studying there or whatever. But tell me about that. And also, are there disciplines that are more difficult to find slots to fill than others
0: mm. i think we're we're not unique in um, facing challenges with talent shortages or at least comp- competitiveness for talent um, q control certainly very early in our life cycle leverage the relationship with my academic team we hired a number of people uh from there but you know i, I ran a team of about 10 or 12 in academia q control is currently almost 65 so that's um that was a well that was tapped out very very quickly <laughs> quickly yeah. um so uh uh y- you know the the relationship with the university is um a little bit more strategic as opposed to simply workforce development, um, but. Um, you know, we we try to engage around the world with major academic programs. We, because we have an office in Los Angeles, we engage there. We engage with uh, uh, NSF centers. We engage with DOE centers. Led out of Berkeley Advanced uh, Quantum Test Bed, um, so we try to ensure that we are. Um, broadly connected to the, the the research community, to the technical community. And of course, that means PhD students and postdocs um, who become a, a talent base for us. There are challenges in specific areas um, for a while, getting um, people who were experts in superconducting hardware, say, but didn't want to just go to a hardware team. Um, really wanted to leverage their skills in a different way. That that took a while, but we we now have quite an amazing team in that. Uh, similarly, uh, there is uh, a lot of competition for experts in in some of the quantum sensing areas. Now we've done very well in recruitment, and we continue to to grow our team of about uh, ten or so. Um, but that's an area where we've been engaging more internationally to recruit talent.
1: Well, so. This has been great. I want to uh, wrap up by asking you to wax philosophic for a moment. I always ask my guests to sort of share future perspective, gaze into your crystal ball, and give me your personal perspective on the potential of quantum computing broadly to transform how we work and live. Certainly, Q-Control is part of this um, you know, transcendent uh, phase we're going through. What, what, someone who's at the top of a company doing real-world applications of this technology Share with me, you know, where you think it'll be in three to five years or 10 years or
0: 50 years. A reason I'm so excited about this field and that I've I've made my entire professional career in it, right? From from graduate school up, is that there are deep parallels in the way we're learning to access and then harness quantum physics as a resource and how we learned to do something similar in the 19th century with electricity. So my view is that quantum technology, broadly, which leverages quantum physics as a resource, is likely to be as transformational in the 21st century as harnessing electricity was in the 19th. Now, it's it's quite amazing because electricity is so ubiquitous that we don't think about it. Right? We get excited about I don't know, the mobile app or something, and we totally forget that it only works because of electronics, because of electrical computing. I foresee a future in which quantum technology becomes as ubiquitous. It's, it's just absolutely everywhere. And we already have one use case that validates this perspective, and that is GPS. Because GPS, you know, we all use Uber and Waze, different location-based services, wide area network synchronization. All of this works because of quantum clocks, right? We're using quantum physics to access the very stable tick inside of atoms. And you know that, that one application, which is the first real application of quantum technology in the way you know a, a modern researcher would think about it, um, that's completely changed the world. It's complete GPS has transformed everything. Yeah. Oh, and that's yeah. only the first application. So when I look forward, I see that when we now expand to quantum computation to quantum sensing for earth observation for navigation for you know lunar exploration and prospecting for off-world uh, planetary exploration i just see quantum technology becoming you know embedded in almost every exciting new technological venture we do uh, and q control and our solutions being part of every one of those applications. That's, that's what I find so exciting about the field and our particular mission in it.
1: Yeah, terrific. Well, Michael, thank you so much for, for speaking with me. I want to invite people to follow you on LinkedIn. Um, what I want to mention there's also a company page on LinkedIn. Also your website, q-control.com. Learn more about the company. Uh, you have a Twitter handle, both uh, for the company and for, for you. So I encourage people to follow you and follow the company. I noticed there's a YouTube channel as well, so there's more mm-hmm. content there that uh, our listeners can check out. And in terms of careers, I always mention uh, you know, that you're looking for skills, and QControl.com slash careers is where our listeners can find out more about opportunities at uh, QControl. So, Michael, thank Absolutely. you very much. I, I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity and, uh, and getting to share our insights with the audience.
1: Thanks again, Michael, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Michael. I listen to my other Quantum Tech Pod episodes if you haven't already. And please connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology.
0: You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum
1: technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.